0: CHAPTER One of An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. By Thomas Reed. Chapter one Introduction. Section one. The importance of the subject and the means of prosecuting it. The fabric of the human mind is curious and wonderful as well as that of the human body. The faculties of the one are with no less wisdom adapted to their several ends than the organs of the other. Nay, it is reasonable to think that as the mind is a nobler work and of higher order than the body, even more of the wisdom and skill of the divine architect hath been employed in its structure. It is therefore a subject highly worthy of inquiry on its own account, but still more worthy on account of the extensive influence which the knowledge of it hath over every other branch of science. In the arts and sciences which have least connection with the mind, Its faculties are the engines which we must employ, and the better we understand their nature and use, their defects and disorders, the more skilfully we shall apply them, and with the greater success. But in the noblest arts the mind is also the subject upon which we operate. The painter, the poet, the actor, the orator, the moralist, and the statesman attempt to operate upon the mind in different ways, and for different ends and they succeed, according as they touch properly the strings of the human frame. Nor can their several arts ever stand on a solid foundation, or rise to the dignity of science until they are built on the principles of the human constitution. Wise men now agree, or ought to agree, in this, that there is but one way to the knowledge of nature's works, the way of observation and experiment. By our constitution, we have a strong propensity to trace particular facts and observations to general rules, and to apply such general rules to account for other effects, or to direct us in the production of them. This procedure of the understanding is familiar to every human creature in the common affairs of life, and it is the only one by which any real discovery in philosophy can be made. The man who first discovered that cold freezes water and that heat turns it into vapor, proceeded on the same general principle and in the same method by which Newton discovered the law of gravitation and the properties of light. His regula philosophandi are maxims of common sense, and are practiced every day in common life, and he who philosophizes by other rules, either concerning the material system or concerning the mind, mistakes his aim. Conjectures and theories are the creatures of men, and will always be found very unlike the creatures of God. If we would know the works of God, we must consult themselves with attention and humility, without daring to add anything of ours to what they declare. A just interpretation of nature is the only sound and orthodox philosophy. Whatever we add of our own is apocryphal and of no authority. All our curious theories of the formation of the earth of the generation of animals, of the origin of natural and moral evil, so far as they go beyond a just induction from facts, are vanity and folly, no less than the vortices of Descartes or the Achaeus of Parcelsus. Perhaps the philosophy of the mind hath been no less adulterated by theories than that of the material system. The theory of ideas is indeed very ancient, and hath been very universally received. But as neither of these titles can give it authenticity, they ought not to screen it from a free and candid examination, especially in this age, when it hath produced a system of skepticism that seems to triumph over all science, and even over the dictates of common sense. All that we know of the body is owing to anatomical dissection and observation, and it must be by an anatomy of the mind that we can discover its powers and principles. SECTION 2. THE IMPEDIMENTS TO OUR KNOWLEDGE OF THE MIND But it must be acknowledged that this kind of anatomy is much more difficult than the other, and therefore it needs not seem strange that mankind have made less progress in it. To attend accurately to the operation of our minds, and make them an object of thought, is no easy matter, even to the contemplative and to the bulk of mankind, is next to impossible. An anatomist, who hath happy opportunity, may have access to examine with his own eyes, and with equal accuracy, bodies of all different ages, sexes, and conditions, so that what is defective, obscure, or preternatural in one, may be discerned clearly, and in its most perfect state in another. But the anatomist of the mind cannot have the same advantage. It is his own mind only that he can examine, with any degree of accuracy and distinctness. This is the only subject he can look into. He may, from outward signs, collect the operations of other minds, but these signs are, for the most part, ambiguous, and must be interpreted by what he perceives within himself so that if a philosopher could delineate to us distinctly and methodically all the operations of the thinking principle within him which no man was ever able to do this would be only the anatomy of one particular subject which would be both deficient and erroneous if applied to human nature in general For a little reflection may satisfy us that the difference of minds is greater than that of any other beings which we consider of the same species. Of the various powers and faculties we possess, there are some which nature seems both to have planted and reared so as to have left nothing to human industry. Such are the powers which we have in common with the brutes, and which are necessary to the preservation of the individual, or the continuance of the kind there are other powers of which nature hath only planted the seeds in our minds but hath left the rearing of them to human culture it is by the proper culture of these that we are capable of all those improvements in intellectuals in taste and in morals which exalt and dignify human nature while on the other hand the neglect or perversion of them makes its degeneracy and corruption The two-legged animal that eats of nature's dainties what his taste or appetite craves, and satisfies his thirst at the crystal fountain, who propagates his kind as occasion and lust prompt, repels injuries, and takes alternate labour and repose, is, like a tree in the forest, purely of nature's growth. But this same savage hath within him the seeds of the logician, the man of taste and breeding, the orator, the statesman, the man of virtue, and the saint, which seeds, though planted in his mind by nature, yet through want of culture and exercise, must lie for ever buried, and be hardly perceivable by himself or by others. The lowest degree of social life will bring to light some of those principles which lay hid in the savage state, and according to his training, and company, and manner of life, some of them, either by their native vigour, or by the force of culture will thrive and grow up to great perfection others will be strangely perverted from their natural form and others checked or perhaps quite eradicated this makes human nature so various and multiform in the individuals that partake of it that in point of morals and intellectual endowments it fills up all that gap which we conceive to be between brutes and devils below and the celestial orders above and such a prodigious diversity of minds must make it extremely difficult to discover the common principles of the species. The language of philosophers, with regard to the original faculties of the mind, is so adapted to the prevailing system that it cannot fit any other, like a coat that fits the man for whom it was made, and shows him to advantage, which yet will sit very awkward upon one of a different make, although perhaps as handsome and as well proportioned it is hardly possible to make any innovation in our philosophy concerning the mind and its operations without using new words and phrases or giving a different meaning to those that are received a liberty which even when necessary creates prejudice and misconstruction and which must wait the sanction of time to authorize it for innovations in language like those in religion and government are always suspected and disliked by the many till use hath made them familiar and prescription hath given them a title. If the original perceptions and notions of the mind were to make their appearance single and unmixed as we first perceived them from the hand of nature, one accustomed to reflection would have less difficulty in tracing them. But before we are capable of reflection, they are so mixed, compounded and decompounded by habits, associations, and abstractions, that it is hard to know what they were originally. The mind may, in this respect, be compared to an apothecary or a chemist, whose materials indeed are furnished by nature, but for the purposes of his art he mixes, compounds, dissolves, evaporates, and sublimes them, till they put on a quite different appearance, so that it is very difficult to know what they were at first, and much more to bring them back to their original and natural form. And this work of the mind is not carried on by deliberate acts of mature reason, which we might recollect, but by means of instincts, habits, associations, and other principles which operate before we come to the use of reason, so that it is extremely difficult for the mind to return upon its own footsteps and trace back those operations which have employed it since it first began to think and act. Could we obtain a distinct and full history of all that hath passed in the mind of a child, from the beginning of life and sensation, till it grows up to the use of reason? How its infant faculties began to work, and how they brought forth and ripened all the various notions, opinions, and sentiments which we find in ourselves when we come to be capable of reflection? This would be a treasure of natural history, which would probably give more light into the human faculties than all the systems of philosophers about them since the beginning of the world but it is in vain to wish for what nature has not put within the reach of our power reflection the only instrument by which we can discern the powers of the mind comes too late to observe the progress of nature in raising them from their infancy to perfection it must therefore require great caution and great application of mind for a man that is grown up in all the prejudices of education, fashion, and philosophy, to unravel his notions and opinions, till he finds out the simple and original principle of his constitution, of which no account can be given but the will of our Maker. This may be truly called an analysis of the human faculties, and, till this is performed, it is in vain we expect any just system of the mind that is, an enumeration of the original powers and laws of our Constitution, and an explication from them of the various phenomena of human nature. Success in an inquiry of this kind it is not in human power to command, but perhaps it is possible, by caution and humility, to avoid error and delusion. The labyrinth may be too intricate, and the thread too fine, to be traced through all its windings, but if we stop where we can trace it no further, and secure the ground we have gained there, there is no harm done. A quicker eye may in time trace it further. It is genius, and not want of it, that adulterates philosophy, and fills it with error and false theory. A creative imagination disdains the mean offices of digging for a foundation, of removing rubbish and carrying material, leaving these servile employments to the drudges in science, It plans a design, and raises a fabric. Invention supplies materials where they are wanting, and fancy adds colouring, and every befitting ornament. The work pleases the eye, and wants nothing but solidity and a good foundation. It seems even to vie with the works of nature, till some succeeding architect blows it into rubbish, and builds a goodly fabric of his own in its place. Happily, for the present age, the castle-builders employ themselves more in romance than in philosophy. That is undoubtedly their province, and in those regions the offspring of fancy is legitimate. But in philosophy it is spurious. Section 3. The present state of this part of philosophy, of Descartes, Malebranche, and Locke that our philosophy concerning the mind and its faculties is but in a very low state may be reasonably conjectured even by those who never have narrowly examined it are there any principles with regard to the mind settled with that perspicuity and evidence which attends the principles of mechanics astronomy and optics these are really sciences built upon laws of nature which universally obtain What is discovered in them is no longer a matter of dispute. Future ages may add to it, but till the course of nature be changed, what is already established can never be overturned. But when we turn our attention inward, and consider the phenomena of human thoughts, opinions, and perceptions, and endeavor to trace them to the general laws and the first principles of our Constitution, we are immediately involved in darkness and perplexity and, if common sense, or the principles of education, happen not to be stubborn, it is odds but we end in absolute scepticism. Descartes, finding nothing established in this part of philosophy, in order to lay the foundation of it deep, resolved not to believe in his own existence till he should be able to give a good reason for it. He was, perhaps, the first that took up such a resolution but if he could indeed have effected his purpose, and really become diffident of his existence, his case would have been deplorable, and without any remedy from reason or philosophy. A man that disbelieves his own existence is surely as unfit to be reasoned with as a man that believes he is made of glass. There may be disorders in the human frame that may produce such extravagancies, but they will never be cured by reasoning. Descartes, indeed, would make us believe that he got out of this delirium by his logical argument, cogito ergo sum, but it is evident he was in his senses all the time, and never seriously doubted of his existence, for he takes it for granted in this argument, and proves nothing at all. "'I am thinking,' says he, "'therefore I am.' And is it not as good reasoning to say, "'I am sleeping, therefore I am?' Or, I am doing nothing, therefore I am? If a body moves, it must exist, no doubt, but if it is at rest, it must exist likewise. Perhaps Descartes meant not to assume his own existence in this enthymeme, but the existence of thought, and to infer from that the existence of a mind, or subject of thought. But why did he not prove the existence of his thought, consciousness, it may be said, vouches that. But who is voucher for consciousness? Can any man prove that his consciousness may not deceive him? No man can, nor can we give a better reason for trusting to it, than that every man, while his mind is sound, is determined by the constitution of his nature to give implicit belief to it, and to laugh at, or pity the man who doubts its testimony." And is not every man in his wits as much determined to take his existence upon trust as his consciousness? The other proposition, assumed in this argument, that thought cannot be without a mind or subject, is liable to the same objection, not that it wants evidence, but that its evidence is no clearer, nor more immediate, than that of the proposition to be proved by it. And taking all these propositions together, I think... I am conscious, everything that thinks exists, I exist, would not every sober man form the same opinion of the man who seriously doubted any one of them? And if he was his friend, would he not hope for his cure from psychic and good regimen, rather than from metaphysic and logic? But supposing it proved that my thought and my consciousness must have a subject, and consequently that I exist? How do I know that all that train and succession of thoughts which I remember belong to one subject, and that I of this moment is the very individual I of yesterday and of times past? Descartes did not think it proper to start this doubt, but Locke has done it, and in order to resolve it gravely determines that personal identity consists in consciousness. That is, if you are conscious that you did such a thing twelve months ago, This consciousness makes you to be the very person that did it. Now consciousness of what is past can signify nothing else but the remembrance that I did it. So that Locke's principle must be that identity consists in remembrance, and, consequently, a man must lose his personal identity with regard to everything he forgets. Nor are these the only instances whereby our philosophy concerning the mind appears to be very fruitful in creating doubts but very unhappy in resolving them. Descartes, Malebranche, and Locke have all employed their genius and skill to prove the existence of a material world, and with very bad success. Poor, untaught mortals believe undoubtedly that there is a sun, moon, and stars, an earth which we inhabit, country, friends, and relations which we enjoy, land, houses, and movables which we possess, But philosophers, pitying the credulity of the vulgar, resolve to have no faith but what is founded upon reason. They apply to philosophy to furnish them with reason for the belief of those things which all mankind have believed, without being able to give any reason for it. And surely one would expect that in matters of such importance the proof would not be difficult. But it is the most difficult thing in the world." for these three great men with the best good will have not been able from all the treasures of philosophy to draw one argument that is fit to convince a man that can reason of the existence of any one thing without him admired philosophy daughter of light parent of wisdom and knowledge if thou art she surely thou hast not yet arisen upon the human mind nor blessed us with more of thy rays than are sufficient to shed a darkness visible upon the human faculties, and to disturb that repose and security which happier mortals enjoy, who never approached thine altar, nor felt thine influence. But if indeed thou hast not power to dispel those clouds and phantoms which thou hast discovered, or created, withdraw this penurious and malignant ray, I despise philosophy, and renounce its guidance. Let my soul dwell with common sense." section four apology for those philosophers but instead of despising the dawn of light we ought rather to hope for its increase instead of blaming the philosophers i have mentioned for the defects and blemishes of their system we ought rather to honour their memories as the first discoveries of a region in philosophy formerly unknown and however lame and imperfect the system may be They have opened the way to future discoveries, and are justly entitled to a great share in the merit of them. They have removed an infinite deal of rust and rubbish collected in the ages of scholastic sophistry which had obstructed the way. They have put us in the right road, that of experience and accurate reflection. They have taught us to avoid the snares of ambiguous and ill-defined words and have spoken and thought upon this subject with a distinctness and perspicuity formerly unknown they have made many openings that may lead to the discovery of truths which they did not reach or to the destruction of errors in which they were involuntarily entangled it may be observed that the defects and blemishes in the received philosophy concerning the mind which have most exposed it to the contempt and ridicule of sensible men have chiefly been owing to this, that the votaries of this philosophy, from a natural prejudice in her favour, have endeavoured to extend her jurisdiction beyond its just limits, and to call to her bar the dictates of common sense. But these decline this jurisdiction. They disdain the trial of reasoning, and disown its authority. They neither claim its aid nor dread its attacks. In this unequal contest betwixt common sense and philosophy, the latter will always come off both with dishonour and loss. Nor can she ever thrive till this rivalship is dropped, these encroachments given up, and a cordial friendship restored. For, in reality, common sense holds nothing of philosophy, nor needs her aid. But, on the other hand, philosophy, if I may be permitted to change the metaphor— has no other root but the principles of common sense. It grows out of them, and draws its nourishment from them. Severed from this root, its honours wither, its sap is dried up, it dies and rots. The philosophers of the last age, whom I have mentioned, did not attend to the preserving this union and subordination so carefully as the honour and interest of philosophy required. But those of the present have waged open war with common sense, and hope to make a complete conquest of it by the subtleties of philosophy. An attempt no less audacious and vain than that of the giants to dethrone Almighty Jove. Section 5. Of Bishop Barclay, The Treatise of Human Nature, and of Skepticism. The present age I apprehend, has not produced two more acute or more practice in this part of philosophy than the bishop of cloyne and the author of the treatise of human nature the first was no friend to scepticism but had that warm concern for religious and moral principles which became his order yet the result of his inquiry was a serious conviction that there is no such thing as a material world nothing in nature but spirits and ideas and that the belief of material substances and of abstract ideas are the chief causes of all our errors in philosophy and of all infidelity and heresy and religion his arguments are founded upon the principles which were formerly laid down by descartes malebranche and locke and which have been very generally received and the opinion of the ablest judges seems to be that they neither have been nor can be confuted and that he hath proved by unanswerable arguments what no man in his senses can believe. The second proceeds upon the same principles, but carries them to their full length, and, as the bishop undid the whole material world, this author, upon the same grounds, undoes the world of spirits, and leaves nothing in nature but ideas and impressions, without any subject on which they may be impressed it seems to be a peculiar strain of humour in this author to set out in his introduction by promising with a grave face no less than a complete system of the sciences upon a foundation entirely new to wit that of human nature when the intention of the whole work is to show that there is neither human nature nor science in the world it may perhaps be unreasonable to complain of this conduct in an author who neither believes his own existence nor that of his reader and therefore could not mean to disappoint him or to laugh at his credulity yet i cannot imagine that the author of the treatise of human nature is so sceptical as to plead this apology he believed against his principles that he should be read and that he should retain his personal identity till he reaped the honour and reputation justly due to his metaphysical acumen indeed he ingeniously acknowledges that it was only in solitude and retirement that he could yield any assent to his own philosophy society like daylight dispelled the darkness and fogs of scepticism and made him yield to the dominion of common sense nor did i ever hear him charged with doing anything even in solitude that argued such a degree of scepticism as his principles maintain Surely, if his friends apprehended this, they would have the charity never to leave him alone. Pyro, the Ilian, the father of this philosophy, seems to have carried it to greater perfection than any of his successors. For if we may believe Antigonus, the Carsatian, quoted by a Diogenes Laertius, his life corresponded to his doctrine. And therefore, if a cart run against him, or a dog attacked him, or if he came upon a precipice, he would not stir a foot to avoid the danger, giving no credit to his senses. But his attendants, who, happily for him, were not so great skeptics, took care to keep him out of harm's way, so that he lived till he was ninety years of age. Nor is it to be doubted that this author's friends would have been equally careful to keep him from harm if ever his principles had taken too strong a hold of him. It is probable the treatise of human nature was not written in company, yet it contains manifest indications that the author every now and then relapsed into the faith of the vulgar, and could hardly for half a dozen pages keep up the sceptical character. In like manner the great Pyro himself forgot his principles on some occasions, and is said once to have been in such a passion with his cook, who probably had not roasted his dinner to his mind... That with the spit in his hand and the meat upon it, he pursued him even into the market place. It is a bold philosophy that rejects without ceremony principles which irresistibly govern the belief and the conduct of all mankind in the common concerns of life, and to which the philosopher himself must yield, after he imagines he hath confuted them. Such principles are older and of more authority than philosophy. She rests upon them as her basis, not they upon her. If she could overturn them, she must be buried in their ruins. But all the engines of philosophical subtlety are too weak for this purpose, and the attempt is no less ridiculous than if a mechanic should contrive an axis in to remove the earth out of its place, or if a mathematician should pretend to demonstrate that things equal to the same thing are not equal to one another. Zeno endeavored to demonstrate the impossibility of motion, Hobbes that there was no difference between right and wrong, and this author that no credit is to be given to our senses, to our memory, or even to demonstration. Such philosophy is justly ridiculous, even to those who cannot detect the fallacy of it. It can have no other tendency than to show the acuteness of the sophist at the expense of disgracing reason and human nature, and making mankind yahoos. Section 6. Of the Treatise of Human Nature There are other prejudices against this system of human nature, which even upon general view may make one diffident of it. Descartes, Hobbes, and this author have each of them given us a system of human nature, an undertaking too vast for any one man, how great soever his genius and abilities may be. There must surely be reason to apprehend that many parts of human nature never came under their observation, and that others had been stretched and distorted to fill up blanks and complete the system. Christopher Columbus or Sebastian Cabot might almost as reasonably have undertaken to give us a complete map of America. There is a certain character and style in nature's works which is never attained in the most perfect imitation of them. This seems to be wanting in the systems of human nature I have mentioned, and particularly in the last. One may see a puppet make a variety of motions and gesticulations which strike much at first view, but when it is accurately observed and taken to pieces, our admiration ceases. We comprehend the whole art of the maker how unlike is it to that which it represents! What a poor piece of work, compared with the body of a man, whose structure the more we know, the more wonders we discover in it, and the more sensible we are of our ignorance! Is the mechanism of the mind so easily comprehended when that of the body is so difficult? Yet by this system three laws of association, joined to a few original feelings, explain the whole mechanism of sense, imagination, memory, belief, and of all the actions and passions of the mind. Is this the man that nature made? I suspect it is not so easy to look behind the scenes in nature's work. This is a puppet, surely, contrived by too bold an apprentice of nature to mimic her work. It shows tolerably by candlelight, but, brought into clear day and taken to pieces, it will appear to be a man made, with mortar and a trowel, The more we know of other parts of nature, the more we like and approve them. The little I know of the planetary system, of the earth which we inhabit, of minerals, vegetables, and animals, of my own body, and of the laws which obtain in these parts of nature, opens to my mind grand and beautiful scenes, and contributes equally to my happiness and power. But when I look within and consider the mind itself, which makes me capable of all of these prospects and enjoyments, if it is indeed what the treatise of human nature makes it, I find I have been only in an enchanted castle, imposed upon by spectres and apparitions. I blush inwardly to think how I have been deluded. I am ashamed of my frame, and can hardly forbear expostulating with my destiny. Is this thy pastime, O Nature, to put such tricks upon a silly creature?— and then to take off the mask and show him how he hath been befooled. If this is the philosophy of human nature, my soul enter thou not into these secrets. It is surely the forbidden tree of knowledge. I no sooner taste of it than I perceive myself naked, and stripped of all things, yea, even of my very self. I see myself, and the whole frame of nature, shrink into fleeting ideas which, like Epicurus's atoms, dance about in emptiness. Section 7. The system of all these authors is the same, and leads to scepticism. But what if these profound disquisitions into the first principles of human nature do naturally and necessarily plunge a man into this abyss of scepticism? May we not reasonably judge so from what hath happened? descartes no sooner began to dig in this mine than scepticism was ready to break in upon him he did what he could to shut it out Malebranche and locke who dug deeper found the difficulty of keeping out this enemy still to increase but they laboured honestly in the design then Berkeley, who carried on the work despairing of securing all bethought himself of an expedient by giving up the material world which he thought might be spared without loss, and even with advantage, he hoped by an impregnable partition to secure the world of spirits. But alas, the treatise of human nature wantonly sapped the foundation of this partition, and drowned all in one universal deluge. These facts, which are undeniable, do indeed give reason to apprehend that Descartes's system of the human understanding, which I shall beg leave to call the ideal system, and which with some improvements made by later writers, is now generally received, hath some original defect, that this scepticism is inlaid in it, and reared along with it, and therefore that we must lay it open to the foundation, and examine the materials before we can expect to raise any solid and useful fabric of knowledge on this subject. Section 8. We ought not to despair of a better. But is this to be despaired of, because Descartes and his followers have failed? By no means. This pusillanimity would be injurious to ourselves, and injurious to truth. Useful discoveries are sometimes indeed the effect of superior genius, but more frequently they are the birth of time and of accidents. A traveller of good judgment may mistake his way, and be unawares led into a wrong track, and while the road is fair before him he may go on without suspicion, and be followed by others. But when it ends in a coal-pit, it requires no great judgment to know that he hath gone wrong, nor perhaps to find out what misled him. In the meantime, the unprosperous state of this part of philosophy hath produced an effect somewhat discouraging indeed to any attempt of this nature, but an effect which might be expected, and which time only and better success can remedy sensible men who never will be sceptics in matters of common life are apt to treat with sovereign contempt everything that hath been said or is to be said upon this subject it is metaphysics say they who minds it let scholastic sophisters entangle themselves in their own cobwebs i am resolved to take my own existence and the existence of other things upon trust and to believe that snow is cold and honey sweet whatever they may say, to the contrary. He must either be a fool, or want to make a fool of me. That would reason me out of my reason and senses. I confess I know not what a sceptic can answer to this, nor by what good argument he can plead even for a hearing. For either his reasoning is sophistry, and so deserves contempt, or there is no truth in the human faculties, and then why should we reason? If, therefore, a man find himself entangled in these metaphysical toils, and can find no other way to escape, let him bravely cut the knot which he cannot loose, curse metaphysic, and dissuade every man from meddling with it. For if I have been led into bogs and quagmires by following an ignis fatuus, what can I better do than warn others to beware of it? If philosophy contradicts herself— befools her votaries and deprives them of every object worthy to be pursued or enjoyed let her be sent back to the infernal regions from which she must have had her original but has it absolutely certain that this fair lady is of the party is it not possible she may have been misrepresented have not men of genius in former ages often made their own dreams to pass for her oracles ought she then to be condemned without any further hearing This would be unreasonable. I have found her in all other matters an agreeable companion, a faithful counsellor, a friend to common sense, and to the happiness of mankind. This justly entitles her to my correspondence and confidence, till I find infallible proofs of her infidelity. End of chapter one. Recording by Stephen Reynolds, Durham, Connecticut.